the thing that animates us over and above basic survival and you know legacy instincts is this thing called play. It's the source of our creativity, of our desire to see things in the world that we imagine. As I discover more and more about play, it's clear that it intersects with all of human life in so many ways, uh, from education, design, art, science and philosophy and all of this, there's play involved in that. And so I'm in love with it. <laughs> Welcome to episode 189 of Be The Drop, a weekly interview podcast sharing stories from inspirational people to help you learn how to tell your story. I'm Amelia Veal, Director at Narrative Marketing and firm believer in the superpower of storytelling. I believe that we can absolutely take our work seriously, but still have fun whilst doing it. Actually, if you're not able to have fun and implement playful work practices, I'm not sure what's the point. As adults, I think we sometimes forget how important it is to remain playful and curious about how we learn and interact with others. Daniel Teitelbaum initially studied philosophy and then helped set up the School of Life branch in Australia, where he delivered the organisation's playful workshops. Through this work and his previous role as a youth leader, Daniel discovered the power of play to help develop better ways of thinking and working. Daniel recently launched his business, Playful Thinking, to help people and organisations think playfully. In this episode of Be The Drop, Daniel talks about the importance of being earnest. He also shares numerous and incredibly useful tips for incorporating playful work practices to improve outcomes. This is Daniel's version of Be The Drop. Are you considering starting a podcast? At Narrative Marketing, we deliver a full range of podcast production options. Or if you'd like help getting started to produce your own content, we also deliver podcast training programs. Hit the link in the show notes for more details. Daniel, thank you so much for joining me for our next episode of Be The Drop. Pleasure. Happy to be here. Well, we're here at, with Playful Things at Pause Fest, and you've got a setup of very colourful bits and pieces in the background, so I'm very excited to hear <laughs> more about that. To get us started, though, I'd love for you to share us a bit of a story, um, something that maybe gives a bit of context about your journey and, and how you got to be playful. Sure. Um, I guess... I there are, I guess a few threads that kind of interweave together and at the same time nicely. I studied philosophy, so that was kind of uh, my first the first thing that I kind of became most interested in. Became very passionate about studying philosophy at Monash Uni. I was doing a law degree at the time, but I cared very little for that and uh, very much involved in the philosophy side and and loved it and really really enjoyed getting into ideas and thinking and thinking big picture stuff, you know, how and practical things, not just the ideas, but also how do these ideas impact us in our daily lives as a society, as a community, etc. At the same time, I was kind of doing education work in uh, youth groups. So as a kind of youth leader at the age of like, you know, 19, 18, 19, 20, where you run after school programs for kids, um, like from all ages, from grade two to year 12. And that was all about, uh, it was education through play, essentially. I didn't really call it that at the time. It was just called informal education. It was like, you know, you'd run a two-hour session on the weekend, kids would come, and you might discuss anything from adolescent issues to world issues to 
personal identity, social issues, whatever it is. Um, and we do that through both play and experience, and so they would experience what we're talking about, um, and you know, actually, you know, lecture and conversation style stuff. So that was really where I was kind of doing education through play. Uh, the philosophy degree ended up leading me to the School of Life. Uh, which is an organization that started in the UK by Alain de Botton, who's an author and philosopher. And he basically looked around and said, I've had a wonderful education, tertiary education. None of it has prepared me for life or life's big questions in any way. So he kind of writes on that subject, and then he started a school on that subject where people come together to discuss life, love, work, how do I find a job I want, how do I find a partner I want, how do I you know, navigate all of life's emotional concerns. And the school draws on great ideas from throughout history, from philosophy to the arts, social sciences, economics, psychology, you name it, and finds the kind of key ideas around that particular theme or subject. People have a conversation about it. So I started working with this organization, essentially about developing emotional intelligence through art and culture and philosophy. And I was uh, helping to set it up in Australia. And I was the head of content, so I was recruiting and training our facilitators. I'd done a lot of facilitation kind of work through the youth group stuff and really enjoyed it. I was also a maths uh, tutor for a while there. So um, through that kind of work in education and in philosophy, I got involved with the School of Life. Um, and I was recruiting and training our, our facilitators. And then when it came time to pick a, the, someone for the play uh, workshop that we had, I picked me. And uh, I thought I was the best person for the job. No, I thought I really wanted to do it and I was really interested in it. So I kind of ran this one-day workshop on play uh, every six months or so for about three years. And each time I was running it, I would spend about a week or two beforehand, you know, further reading and researching and tweaking the material and, um, yeah, kind of putting my own uh, thoughts and ideas and, and drawing from all over the place to develop this program. By the time I got to, you know, three years down the track, there were a few other things happening at the School of Life that I'd been there for a while and uh, we'd expanded quite a bit and stuff was changing and I decided it was a really good time for me to continue on my own in terms of the development that I do, professional and personal development, and play, play was, was the thing that was kind of pushing me to, to do that. Um, yeah, every time I got deeper I realised this thing called play, whatever it is, and I guess that's the interesting thing about studying play is that I have some sense of what play is, I'm studying it, but at the same time I'm trying to understand what it is by studying it. So as I discover more and more about play, it's clear that it intersects with all of human life in so many ways, uh, from you know uh, education, design, art, um, to science and philosophy and all of this, there's, there's play involved in that. Um, and it kind of got to the point where I believe that play is the fundamental human drive that creates all that is unnecessary. So we have the drive to eat and sleep and find shelter and procreate, some of us may. Um, and the thing that animates us over and above all of those basic um, survival and you know, legacy instincts is this thing called play. It's the source of our creativity, of our desire to see things in the world that we imagine. Um, and so... I'm in love with it. <laughs> it obviously, yeah. it comes through in how you talk about it. But what I think is really interesting is because if I go and talk about play, I think that often the most common thing that people would think of is children, play, yes. Yes. you know, and really think about in a context of um, maybe a playground mm -hmm. or at school, but definitely get that young sort of fun, oh, it's something that they do yes. aspect. But you're talking about play in a completely different way. Yes. You're talking about it as a much broader 
life context and a business yeah. context potentially. That's right. So my, my work is to study things from the world of play and that's everything from game design and games to performance, clowning, um, education, philosophy, therapy, anything and everything that touches play or play touches um, is what I kind of study and experience and draw from. And then I try to apply that to the real world, to uh, our lifestyle and our work. Um, so doing that... Well, uh, let me go back and talk a little bit about why why we associate play so strongly with childhood. Now, we play, we, our drive to play is strongest as we're children. Animals play. There's a lot of play in the animal kingdom. And it um, mostly happens in, in youth. Uh, and the reason some say, and this, there's a lot of ambiguity about these kinds of things, but um, the reason is that it's how we learn and grow and develop and create social connection and empathy and understand how to manipulate objects in the real world and blah, 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 blah. There are studies that show, you know, our sense of uh, resilience uh, in, in learning through play at the beginning will is where we get that for the rest of our lives, you know. So there's a lot about how important play is in youth. Uh, the thing about the human being, and there are a few other animals who share this quality with us, but we have a special quality called neoteny. And it's a term that uh, Stuart Brown uses in his book called Play, and it's that we have the capacity to to play outside of youth, once we've finished youth. Um, throughout our whole lives, our brain continues to develop and adapt, and, uh, and, it, and it does so through play. The reason why we discard play at a particular age, and it starts as early as double digits, once we hit 10 or 11, is because play is so heavily associated with childhood, because that's what we do as kids. You don't have any other responsibilities. You're just meant to play and learn through play and discover through play. When it comes time to be an adult and you, you know, start to be a teenager and you go, well, it's time for me to be an adult. And a lot of us might remember that point in which we said, actually, being an adult's better than being a child. And it might be particularly if you have a younger sibling and you want to hang with the adults rather than the kids, you know, be at the adult's table. We have this desire sometimes to, to, to become an adult. And so you go, well, what does it mean to be an adult? Well, it means to be a child. What does it mean to be a child? Well, it means to play. And so to be a child is to play, then to be an adult is to not play. So that idea of not playing in adulthood is defined by the fact that childhood is about play. And so we start to purposefully disassociate from our play styles um, because we want to be an adult. Over and above that, the responsibilities of adult life, the time, the amount of effort and energy we have to expend on work-like things, um, it becomes a problem. It becomes, there are greater and greater obstacles and over time we become more and more accustomed to not playing and there's a prevailing, still in a lot, you know, a lot of places, a prevailing concept that play is frivolous and that uh, a serious adult doesn't and it's, and it's still, you know, still the way it is. So that's why we don't play and why we have so many obstacles. Uh, but we're born to play, we're made to play, and we can continue to play forever because it is what helps to change the way we think, move, live, work. Mm. Um, yeah. And so in, in that then, if you go into a workplace and say to people, right, okay, I'm now going to teach you to play. Oh, I ne would never say that. <laughs> oh, okay, so what would you say? How does that work? Um, and then I want to know the benefits of it. But first yeah. of all, explain it. How do you go, like, cool, how yeah. does it apply in the workplace? Sure. Um, why wouldn't, first of all, why wouldn't tell anyone I'll teach them how to play is that we all have an immense capacity to play. What I try to do is facilitate an environment that fosters play, um, provide people the permission to play, which is a big thing, uh, and, and then really just, yeah, in removing those obstacles and, and allowing play to, to occur. Um, that's kind of, that's the mission. So do you sometimes find there's resistance when you start this process? Yeah, but th there would be, um, but I, I have a, a way that I approach all of my presentations and it's always to um, convince the intellect first. 
It just happens in the work context that that is the uh, seat of power is in decision making is is the mind and our intellectual, you know, our rational side. And so I first appeal to that. I first make a kind of almost academic case as to why play is important, and then we'll start to do acts of play. I will. I, I know how. For a lot of people, there's a tr also a lot of trauma around play, particularly if they were um, told not to play or punished for playing early in life, which a lot of people were, um, and they didn't. They don't get to develop the capacity to play freely. Uh, so, kind of de being delicate to that trauma is also important. I need to really create the safety required first, and so I do that by appealing first to the mind. Um, then the kinds of activities I'll do are as light touch as possible to begin, and and kind of uh, ramp up as we get more comfortable with each other with me with the, what we're doing in the space um, so that's kind of a really important part of how I approach it is that with a kind of real delicacy I guess um, how what I do and how I do it can be all kinds of things um, so it could be anything I've, I'm just thinking what I've done done recently I mean the simple thing is like team building and you know creating teaching people how to collaborate or allowing people experiences of collaboration and how we can do that better um, innovation in the creative process uh, I'm doing some uh, associate teacher of design now at Monash University and I teach like the fundamental concept concepts of design, like iteration and collaboration and communication, but I'll explore that through games and play. You know, where does, how, what does iteration mean? Well, if we do a game design workshop where we're changing a rule here, a rule there, a rule here, a rule there, we're learning about what iteration does to the, to the thing we're creating. Communication, we might play a game where communication is, is um, used differently or breaks down or the um, way of mode of communicating is completely different. Let's say visual and physical rather than words and ideas or whatever it is. Um, um, using Lego as a tool to communicate ideas as opposed to, you know, a whiteboard and, and you know, post-it notes, whatever it is. Trying to find the different modalities of thinking and communication. So that's an example of like big picture topics. But I might do something more specific, like a, a brand values activity. So I'll do a brand values, did a brand values activity recently for an organization, and um, they didn't have their, their list of five key words that are their brand values, which everyone has, you know, integrity, honesty, whatever it is. Uh, when the rubber hits the road, most of the time, those values are, are meaningless on a day-to-day -day level. Um, and I wanted to, so our workshop was first to come up with how we did that. And we do that again in, in a playful way where we're talking about gurus and mentors and um, doing cutting and pasting uh, uh, and the kind of collage board. Um, and that's that's fun, but it's the same thing as if you were to write a list of people that you know, you want to draw ideas from. But instead, we're you know, a little bit more crafty with that, using our hands, which is important, things like that. Um, and then what I, what I did in that one is we role-played very specific examples of what they do in their, in their work. So there might be a person who deals with suppliers or, you know, stakeholders of a certain thing or the choices we make and in interactions we have within our work life. And we role-played all of those using a particular theatre style that allowed people to stop what was going on and say, no, okay, now I want you to do that with more honesty because that's one of our values. And I think that would mean you have to disclose this information. So there's like grey areas where like, what does honesty mean? Well, actually it means when you talk to a supplier, you tell them of the uncertainty of what's coming up. You know, it, that might be the choice that you make. And that's to show this is a very practical place in which our value makes sense. And so we access that through role play and coming up with scenarios and actually getting into the nitty gritty rather than just saying, oh, we're happy with our list of five values. So that's, that's another example. So I do a lot of surface design stuff. So service design or, or UX design or customer journey or whatever it is, they start at A, they go through B, C, and D, and they end at whatever. Um, there are lots of great models for service design. I use game design. I use game design because I found it's the most comprehensive model for accounting how a person interacts with a system or a space or people. Uh, game designers know that 
People will try anything and everything in a game. So they're used to that kind of breadth of thinking. Um, they understand choice in a really deep and interesting way and that people actually can make choices in their minds without actually doing an act to express that choice. So there's a whole lot of really interesting stuff that game design seems to take account of that service design models don't. So that's kind of an example of how there's lots and lots and lots in the play world and there's lots and lots and lots you can do in the business world and I try to find the right playful methodology to do that. And I do that because play seems to be the most effective way, the most engaging way, the most long-lasting way of, uh, of getting people to, to, to think and do things. So. Yeah, so what are some of those benefits? You know, you say that play is the most effective way. The most effective, you know, what are some of those benefits that you've really seen people take away from learning through play? Um, I guess the, the benefit is in is in what's required for play is uh, some really, really important things that you require for good work. Um, and we don't know that we necessarily require these for good work, but we do. One is play is all voluntary. So there's an extent to which play has a voluntary element. Now, some of these uh, pure elements of play break down when we use it as an instrument in the work context. I'm not unhappy with that. I don't mind. Like, for example, play should be purposeless and done for its own sake. But in a work context, we're playing for a very specific purpose. We want a particular outcome. Pure play might be without any concern about the outcome. I don't mind um, breaking that rule of pure play to make it work in a business context. And, there are, yeah, so I guess that's the first thing. But what, what play requires is that we're all there willing to play at the time. Um, we have a sense of trust and safety between each other. You can't play unless, you're, unless you feel safe. Uh, and so same thing in a work context. You can't give good ideas or um, you know, really put yourself into what you're doing unless you feel safe, unless you, feel, unless you trust the people that you're working with. Um, play fosters these, so trust, safety. Um, the next is an openness of ideas. It's as simple as like yes and is a fantastic example. So have you ever played yes and? Uh, yes and. Yeah. <laughs> Very simple way it works. You know, someone starts and they go, I went to the beach the other day and you go, yes, and we went for a swim. And yes, and we saw a shark. Yes, and we made friends with a shark or whatever. That activity, quite literally, if you, we were to do that for a couple of minutes before we had a brainstorming session or a session to come up with new ideas, would open us up to greater ideas. It's an improv tool that... 100% allows more open thinking and for us to build a conversation together rather than block each other or say, no, but, blah, blah, blah. And it's in the power of the language. If we were to go, no, but, or, you know, that kind of thing, um, we're, we're going to close down conversation. And what you find in a workplace, um, I don't remember where I read this, so I can't give a great reference, um, but what happens is, is that people tend to go to the yes and kind of people in their organization when they have a new idea. Because when your idea is new, it's fragile, you don't want to take it to the person who's going to tear it apart and show you what's wrong with it. You go to the person who goes yes and and kind of helps co-create that idea with you. And then further down the track, you go to the critique who says, we've got now a, a much more robust idea, help us make it better by critiquing it. So those roles are both, the, those are important roles to play in an organization. But the yes and people get uh, to hear ideas first for exactly that reason, just, just how it happened, which means they get access to opportunities first because their style is open and co-creative and building. So yes, and the language of it, which is good to practice, and the activity of doing it at the right time does wonders for, and takes two minutes, you know, but does wonders for that process of innovation or creativity or even collaboration. Um, and it's so, so, so simple. Uh, and if you work that into your regular practices, you'll just, you'll see better results. Simple as that. Mm. So if you had to try and give some very top level tips for listeners who want to try and, you know, be more playful in their workplace, yeah. where, where should they start? Uh, okay. The first is movement. 
So we're not brains on sticks. Um, we are embodied creatures. The I mean, I, I don't want to get into a discussion of what is consciousness, but um, it, it's... The philosophy degree. Yes, yes. that's right. <laughs> but it's almost certainly not located solely in the uh, wet organ in the skull, the brain. Um, it's probably more related to the connections of uh, the neural network that connects throughout our entire body. And so when we don't move, we don't think as well. There are great examples as well of like both Nietzsche, Friedrich Nietzsche, the German philosopher, and Charles Darwin um, said they both both walked a lot when they did their thinking. In fact, I think Nietzsche said that the only good thinking uh, is done while walking, and that's because movement quite literally helps us think better. Moving the body, getting getting things happening, um, and so the best thing to do is to see a way to move, and that can mean anything. That can mean you know simple as going for a walk when you want to think about something, but also can mean you know if you're writing ideas out, get physical with them. Get you know colourful pens, textures, that kind of cliched thing you might say. Is, you know do a whole lot of post-it notes and thing. It's not so much about I mean one yes you seeing the ideas in a different way, which is always helpful, but you're literally physically moving your body. You're writing with your hand. You're you know, doing that. Um, actually, another one, the hand-brain connection. Hand-brain connection. A lot of show that, that uh, when we use our hands, we think better. When we, when we use our hands while we think. That's where Lego serious play comes from. The deep underlying idea there is that uh, we, can, we can think better and communicate ideas better when we're using our hands to, to do that. So the body. Engage your body in your work and in your thinking is definitely one big tip. Oh, fantastic. Um, is more? It, you want more? Yeah, no, yeah, there's a hundred thousand. Give us, well, not a hundred thousand. I've said, I think another one is engage another mind. So that's a, that's a, um, a good one. We often, uh, you might have work processes where you go, actually, when I finish this, I take it to my supervisor and give, tell them what I'm thinking and they give me feedback, blah, 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 blah. You can engage another mind earlier in the process. Um, and there are lots of fun little gamified ways that you can collaborate with somebody. And so you can say, you could be working on something for a while by yourself and if you ever feel stuck or whatever, we're often shy to ask somebody for help and to think, no, I'm meant to be doing this by myself, you know, I, or I want the credit or whatever. The more we can engage another mind in the process of our work, outside of the formal structures, um, the kind of more, and you can do that in a playful way. And if it's not a formal structure, it can be less serious. And, you know, that's a helpful way to free up the creativity and, and the way of thinking. So engage another mind. And the other one is play to procrastinate. So, I don't, do you procrastinate much? Yes. Yes. So I, <laughs> I, like, I would love to say no, but yeah. that would well, be lying. This is something I invented to make myself feel better about procrastinating. Uh, the terrible term I've got at the moment is playcrastinating. Uh, and it's as simple as when, you're, when you've got a task and you don't want to work on it you're, and you want to procrastinate by doing something like surf the internet or blah, 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 to playcrastinate is to do something like take the material of your work so, I don't know, let's say it was a list of people. Let's say you run a manufacturing plant, I don't know, and you've got your list of employees and they're, you, you would normally have that in an org chart or whatever. And I don't know, you might have to be thinking about how do I find greater efficiencies in my organization? But, you know, the, you, maybe that's too creative a task. Whatever it is, the sub, sub, subject matter you've got there is a list of people. And one thing you could do to play to procrastinate is why not print out all their names or post it on a post-it note or whatever, get the thing, and rearrange the way that they relate to each other. Instead of relating them in an org chart, relate them in, uh, you know, put the, group them according to favorite cuisines or um, letters of their names or whatever it is. What you're doing is you're dealing with the subject matter of uh, the work that you're meant to be doing, which is the list of people. 
you're not doing something work-related or purposeful with it. You're not doing the work that you're set out to do, whatever it is that you're meant to be doing. Um, you're just playing with it. It's a purposeless activity. There's nothing that should come from you arranging your uh, employees into favorite cuisine groups. But there almost always is something insightful that comes out of that kind of activity, and that's the paradox of play is that you're not nothing you're not meant to expect anything out of it um, but something often does and you've already started to get familiar with the stuff you're dealing with anyway without having the pressure of actually achieving anything and what I find that does is then you're like oh well why am I procrastinating now I may as well actually do the work I'm used to m dealing with this material but instead I'm arranging it in a way that's not help not part of my job now I'll easily it's easier to transition into the work-based thing because you've gotten over that oh blank canvas feeling of I don't want to touch this stuff that's my, that's a tip. <laughs> Fantastic, I like it. Well, yeah. Daniel, thank you so much. Thanks In for conclusion, me. though, could you share with me Daniel's Be The Drop tip? So the Be The Drop tip is a way to communicate in a way that motivates and inspires others. How do we communicate in a way to motivate and inspire others? Yes, your top tip for that, because there's probably many ways. <laughs> yeah, okay, the, I'll tell you, the, I'll do the first thing that came to mind. Um, and this is actually, this, this comes from um, a book by Ian Bugos, which is called Play Anything, actually. And he talks about um, irony. And the way that, and this is probably more prevalent in millennials than older generations, um, but kind of lots is done ironically. And what that means is it's kind of gestured towards without fully committed or engagement in that thing that you're doing. So, you know, you might uh, wear a SpongeBob SquarePants t-shirt, ironically. It's not that you're interested in SpongeBob SquarePants, but it's funny that you, someone like you might be. So you wear it not really serious about the fact that you're wearing it, but at the same time you are actually wearing a SpongeBob SquarePants t-shirt. That's a lot of millennial thinking is that kind of ironic approach or ironic treatment of subjects. He talks about earnestness and the importance of saying truly what you believe and how you believe it and why you believe it. And he says it's kind of we're moving away from that. Um, and, that and, and that earnestness, communicating honestly and clearly with people about how you feel or why you feel passionately about something, rather than that kind of hedging your bets in the kind of ironic way of talking about things or with a slight with skepticism or sarcasm to some extent, just to you know, hedge your bets and uh, when you talk about something. Um, he, we want to see more earnestness. And that's the kind of, that, that seriousness, that earnestness, it's not that it's, it's, you know, you can't be fun or funny. What it is, it's about really committing to what it is you believe and what you think and why you believe and think it. I think we could do more of that in the way we communicate. And that's how we engage in the playground. I mean, the playground is a fun place, but we earnestly play games. We, we do it with full commitment. We're serious about winning, you know, hopscotch or skipping or whatever it is. We're serious about the activity we're doing. Game spaces allow for a serious commitment to something completely purposeless. And I think that that's part of how we can communicate better with a, with a real engagement in what we're, what we're saying. Oh, fantastic. Thank nice. you so much. Cool. Thanks for joining me for another episode of Be The Drop. Don't forget to subscribe in order to ensure you never miss out on one of our weekly episodes. Be The Drop is produced by Narrative Marketing, where we believe that stories connect individuals and that powerful storytelling can positively impact the world. To unleash your storytelling superpower, visit narrativemarketing.com.au or check out our social links in the show notes. To contact me directly with any specific comments you have, you can email me via amelia at narrativemarketing.com.au. And don't forget that whilst a task or challenge may seem overwhelming, a waterfall begins with one drop and look what comes from that.